School CEO Conversations is an Aptigy Media production. We like to have insightful conversations with education's most inspiring and thoughtful leaders. In this episode, Seat in the Circle, we talk with Dr. Calvin Watts, Superintendent of Washington's Kent School District. Here is today's host, Michael. Calvin, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you having me, and I look forward to sharing a little bit about who I am and most importantly, why I do what I do. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, we're excited. And just to give our listeners a little more background, you have a pretty unique experience serving essentially almost as far apart in the country as you possibly can get, (laughs) serving from Washington (laughs) State to Georgia and back. And so could you share with us like how you got into education and also how you went from the Northwest to the Southeast and then have come back as well? Absolutely. Well, I think it's even more fitting, Michael, that today is February 1st, yeah. which uh, marks the first day of, of Black History Month. And we are certainly celebrating this month, not just in February, but early and often in Kent School District. And so I'll begin by by sharing with you the reason why I actually had the opportunity to relocate from Washington to the Atlanta area and then back to Washington was that I blame and give all credit to my parents, right, for who I am. So my parents moved from the deep south. They didn't know each other, but they actually moved during the second migration. Mm -hmm. And this would have been in the early 60s. So when many African-Americans relocated to northern or western or even northwestern portions of the United States, they did not know each other. And yet when they both arrived in, in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Seattle, Washington, they met, they were married. And three years later, I was welcomed into the world. Our bodies are no longer with us. I will just say that uh, while they live on in me and people who know and have known my parents, they know that I am a splitting image of them both. My mom was a leader in the the health field. My dad was a leader in the military and worked for a major corporation in Bellevue, Washington. But they instilled lessons in me in living and leadership that largely shaped who I am today. Lessons like empathy, equity, loving yourself and taking care of yourself and your neighbor so that you can take care of others kindness, integrity. They even wanted to ensure that, that I had a, a faith-based education mm-hmm. uh, and, and instilled in me doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, right? And recognizing that you won't always get it right, they used to share with me, but to take that mentality uh, with you. So so I, I was a Howard University graduate. You know, After high school, my parents knew the three choices that I had, but they simply said to me, you can go anywhere you'd like, but our money's going to Howard. <laughs> and was wise, and, and I will say it was the greatest educational experience that I have ever had from a formal education standpoint. I saw images of me growing up, certainly from my dad, my uncles, several leadership examples of those who, who reflected me as a male, as a, as a black man in this country, except in the form of a classroom teacher. In fact, the first time that I had a teacher who looked exactly like me, Michael, was my freshman year in college. And so after graduating from Howard University, I had the opportunity to begin my career in Seattle Public Schools. And then two years later, I had my friends and buddies of mine who said, you got to come back back east. In fact, you got to come back to Hotlanta. <laughs> and so I sold everything except for my books and my clothes and did what is now referred to as the reverse migration. So I went back to the Southeast to where my parents came, the place where my parents were born. And I became a Southerner. And in 2014, 2015, academic year, I uh, was recruited and received an opportunity to apply for a job that I could have never dreamt of, right? But the opportunity to come back home was just incredibly intriguing and a dream come true to see my 
my family, people that I grew up with. And I made my, my transition during that spring and summer and began my tenure as superintendent in Kent School District in 2015-2016 academic year. Oh, wow. Yeah, so pretty big jumps from one side of the country to the other and then back and then back again, I guess. I was interested. You had mentioned about like your parents being behind a lot of what you do. And you talked about them serving or your father being military and your mother working in healthcare. But was it that service aspect that did draw you into education? Absolutely. Michael, I appreciate the question. And if you look at both industries, right, the military in our country, the health field in our country, it, it is, they are both true examples of high reliability organizations. And as an only child, I learned very quickly from my dad, you know, making up my bed so a quarter could bounce off of him. And that's a, that was a real thing. <laughs> and my mother you know, would also make sure that I knew how to take care of myself and understood that taking care of your body, your mind, and your soul is truly about being healthy. And the purpose of being healthy, yes, is to take care of yourself. And it's bigger than that. And that's really what they shared, but the purpose of being healthy so that you can take care of others. And I learned that in an early age. And as an only child, if something you know went wrong or my parents didn't do it, I couldn't blame anyone. Right. So <laughs> that work ethic was instilled in me at a very young age. It was do it right the first time if you can, but if not, double check, triple check. And that's where that continuous improvement, before I even knew it, there was anything called continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. I had that growing up. And while I don't have my entire life to spend with my family, they had their entire life to instill lessons in me, particularly in leadership and how to take care of others and myself. So I owe much of, if not all of who I am and why I do what I do to my parents and those who have served you know, even after them. Mm -hmm. And Thinking of specifically with education, you mentioned yes. that you didn't have a teacher that looked like you until you were in college. So when were you drawn to education? I mean, was it something that from seeing that in college or were you drawn to that before despite not seeing someone who, who looked like you in the classroom? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I think most people will tell you that whatever career path they've taken, it's likely not been the first career path that they've chosen. Right. So to be 100% clear, I just knew I was going to be a CEO, general manager of a hotel chain, a hotel uh, corporation. And that was my goal. Really? I actually, I was a hotel restaurant management major. That was my first major at, at Howard. And why? Why I love to travel. I love to meet people and just enjoyed that atmosphere. And I realized that the service industry from that perspective was very different than actually pouring into others and watching uh, others grow and develop as learners and as leaders. And I slowly began to transition from that desire to being a, a ladder climber in the corporate world to serving in the, the nonprofit world, right? Really, yeah. and I would say more so in serving as an educator. And, and I didn't know exactly how that was going to work out, but I really knew that my examples of my relatives who were teachers or uh, were leaders in nonprofit areas that were focused on education or supporting education. And I made the change during my junior, actually sophomore to junior year. Uh, if I haven't shared it, when I lost my mom to cancer, that was the year. It was the second last year before I finished Howard. Oh, wow. And so I made her a promise and, and made my family a promise that I would, would finish, right? Would finish university. And, and as a, a English major and a secondary education minor to change the world and to change the world one student at a time. And that was really my focus. And that's when I, I moved back to Seattle area and began my teaching career. Wow. So I guess you some way kind of ended up as a CEO then, right? As a superintendent, so. <laughs> 
it's it's the the irony is not lost on me. And at the same time, Michael, I will always see myself as a teacher, and always consider myself a teacher. And then I share that with our our leaders. I mean, the notion of a one room schoolhouse is exactly why the principal is referred to as a principal because at one point the principal was actually the principal teacher, and we now about as far away from one room schoolhouses as we can possibly be with my former school district enrolling nearly 180,000 students. Mm -hmm. Kent School District, we are the fifth largest in Washington State with uh, 26,000 students and we're the second most diverse according to niche.com. So the, the uniqueness of this role, uh, serving, yes, as CEO, also as I would say, CEO really does signify different names. And, and what I mean by that is that E can be transferable. So yes, it does mean chief executive officer. And it does mean, in my mind, it means chief educational officer. Mm -hmm. It also means chief equity officer and chief excellence officer. And when I think back to the expectations, another E, right, that my parents instilled in me, that you have to serve, but you have to serve in a way that others would want to follow. And that has stuck with me. And nothing nothing is, is guaranteed, certainly. But how do we make sure that we're providing opportunities for students who are furthest away from educational justice or who have needs that that have not yet been met. Mm -hmm. And that is our work. You know, we didn't talk about equity growing up, but that's what they meant. That's what my parents meant. Right. Uh, how do you provide for others what they need when they need it? They did that for me. I didn't have everything I always wanted, but I knew I had everything I needed. And that's what equity is for and has been for for me. Now kind of talking specifically about equity and building you know, building a more equitable school districts, building a more equitable society. What have you seen as the differences as well as the similarities in trying to do that in the Deep South as well as trying to do that in the Northwest? Yes, I think most people on the surface would say that regions of our country are so vastly different that you can identify cultures and, and ways of living and how organizations operate. And, and that's, by and large, that is true. I would also have to admit that as I've learned and lived in, in quite a few places around the country and actually have the opportunity to live abroad, I have seen that there are more similarities and yet there are unique nuances to those similarities, such as I do believe that every parent in this country wants what is best for their child. Mm -hmm. I, I do believe that every teacher wants and believes that they know what is best for our students. And I believe the same for our principals and our central admin and our school board directors. What I've recognized that no matter where one serves as superintendent, that is why it is so incredibly hard. So, so how do we ensure that you know, what I often refer to the needs from the living room to the boardroom to the classroom are met? And the easy solution, quite frankly, to build an equitable system first is to make sure you know who your community is mm -hmm. and you have to know and that takes time so I, I will share with you when i was just proud to serve and now in my sixth year in in kent school district and that's that's you know that's a lifetime in, in superintendent uh, like dog years right it's about yeah. 50 <laughs> years yeah. and so but i say that from an equity standpoint i could have easily said you know i've listened to my family because all of my family said we know we know everything there is to, to know about kent and they sent me articles and I could have taken those articles and taken that very narrow perspective, as real as it was and as relevant as it was, and said, okay, I've got a plan. Mm -hmm. And I want everyone to know that I'm here and I'm superintendent and watch me work. 
that strategy never works well or ends well. And I can say that because I've learned that sometimes the harder lessons to go through that, but also those are the most valuable. And so what did I do? I realized that I had to ask questions. It's, it's classic Stephen Covey, right? Seek first to understand before being understood. And so I began with a very comprehensive entry plan, asking questions to every member of the community, literally 5,000 comments. And this was before we were you know, engaging in digital mm -hmm. surveys. This was, this was individual conversations on the phone or face-to-face -face with the board, every principal, uh, assistant principal, teachers, students, and community members to ask very common questions. What do you like about Kent School District? What are the pain points? What are the concerns? If there's any information that you believe you haven't shared with me that's important for me to know, tell me. And I learned probably the most from that. That was my final question. <laughs> Just that, that open-ended conversation. What is it that you really want me to know? And I heard a great deal. I heard a great deal about equity and most importantly, inequities that maybe they weren't referred to in that way, mm -hmm. but I could tell very clearly that there were some within the community who didn't feel like their needs were being met or that their concerns or thoughts were, were being listened to. And then I remember when, when someone said, well, Dr. Watts, you've been here for three months and you're, you're looking and you're listening. When are you going to do something? <laughs> And I had, my response was the same, Michael. I said, I appreciate that. I said, I said, I want you to understand what I said earlier. I said, this is the doing. I said, you wouldn't want me to come in and say, I need to change this and let's change those and, and let's do this now because we don't even know each other yet. Mm -hmm. And I plan to be here. And I said this, I plan to be here for a very, very, very long time. So let's start with the most important, which is making sure we have a shared understanding of who we are, yeah. a shared understanding of what our needs are and where we want to be. That became the impetus for our strategic plan. And so I was playing the long game, right? And the, the notion of, I know where we'd like, where we need to be, but I want to make sure that I'm not just going out for a walk. And, and that is what leadership is when you don't have anyone following you. And so to make sure that there were people behind me, beside me, in front of me, I said, I need people who are going to be a guide on the side. I need people who are going to be a force in the front to be able to say no, not yet. I need people who are going to be able to be a brace in the back because I'm going to falter at some point. I'm not perfect. I know that. Ask my wife. She knows it better than I do. <laughs> but the reality is I'm going to make mistakes, not on purpose. I said, but I also need someone who's going to break my fall. And when I do to say, you know what, we, we got you. Okay, let's, let's try it again. Let's, but let's try to get it a different way. And so those are the relationships that I began cultivating early on. And is it perfect? Certainly no. No relationship, no family. Mm -hmm. you know, we refer to ourselves as Team KSD, and there's no team that's perfect. But I helped our community understand that we are a team. And a team is simply defined as a group of individuals who has agreed upon goals. And we create vision and a strategy and a form of communication to achieve those goals. And that's to improve outcomes for our students and the staff and the families who are being supported or whom we support. It's simple, just not easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine that focusing so much on building those relationships would probably help you build a lot of trust within the community, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to trust me in a much deeper and broader way if you're actually listening to me or if I'm listening to you. Mm -hmm. So I will share with you, there were people who said, why are you doing this? And, and so I can give you one example in particular. 
we were actually having conversations about school business related topics. And we realized there were people who didn't know, or there were people who should have known, but, but for some reason they didn't. This is my second year. This is 2016, 2017. And we were going through some challenges, the beginning of some budget challenges that were showing up that had occurred years before I arrived. But the reality is I'm here. And so we right. have to respond to them. And so in that, there were some challenges that we had to face and some decisions that needed to be made. And I said, well, we're having some unique opportunities right now that I think can be improved if we had different voices at this table. I said, so what do you think? And I talked to a buddy of mine, a colleague in a school district in California, and he had a vast amount of experience working with labor unions, and I sought help, right? Mm -hmm. So he gave me an idea. I said, let's see how this works. We'll take, you know, let's take this trust that we've engendered over this uh, two-year period. Let's take it for a spin. So I said to, to the cabinet, these are the people, generally speaking, for the most part, who report directly to me or report to those who report directly to me. And, and I said, what would you think if I invited our, our teachers union president to be a part of cabinet? And a hush fell over the crowd. <laughs> right? and, and people looked at me like, well, what, wait, what? Like, what, what's in your coffee cup? What, are you, what is yeah. that? I said, just coffee. I said, so help me understand. What, why the pushback? And the you know, longer story, shorter, Michael, the impression and the assumptions were, this is an adversarial relationship. Right. There's always something that we have to fight against or for. I said, why is that? And as I kept continuing asking why, at least five times, right? And so we got right to the, to the core because we're not communicating. So what do we often hear? We often hear, and rightfully so. I didn't hear that. Well, the district is not communicating with me. And shame on us if we're not listening, because that is exactly what was happening. Whether perceived or real, it's real. And so, Because <laughs> it's real to them, so it's real. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I said, I think this is our next step. So let's try it. And we tried it. And the year after that, we added our PTSA president. And we added six members of our nine labor partners. We added our president of our Teamsters Union, our bus drivers. We had our coaches, our paraeducators. So other than students, because they couldn't you know, obviously be present during a, a midday meeting, we made sure that all voices who could either benefit or actually be negatively impacted by any decision we make, that they had a seat in the circle. And that, for me, has been one of, uh, I would call one of my most provocative leadership decisions and one that has paid the most dividends going forward. Obviously, not every decision that we make is widely popular, but no one can say, hey, the district didn't tell me that. Right. Or I didn't know that that was going to be the case. If, if there's advice that I could give to other superintendents and colleagues, you know, that's one way to you know, increase the opportunities and the effectiveness of two-way meaningful communication. It's kind of that their team of rivals, I think, is the best put the book about some of these leadership tactics of President Lincoln. Same concept. Yeah. So I did want to ask, going specifically to like the issue of fighting for equity, for you being a black man, have you experienced or do you feel like there are any challenges for you specifically as a black man fighting for equity? And then also going back to that original issue we were talking about, specifically in different areas of the country, whether that's being in the Southeast or being in the Northwest. Yes. No, I appreciate that question. And it's one I, I'm confronted with when I look in the, the mirror, mm -hmm. but also look out to areas that we're focusing on, on leading. I've said this early and often, and I remember like it was yesterday when uh, George Floyd's killing took place and the, mm -hmm. the murder of a human being 
that we saw on live television. And uh, I had to, you know, work with my wife, who was my my rock and certainly my support in this work. And she's also uh, a school counselor by trade. And so the reality is she was able to help walk the three of us as we managed taking in these images and processing them. The three of you being you, your wife, and... My, my wife and our son, and who's a senior in, in a school district. So keep in mind, I am not only superintendent, I'm also a parent. And as I shared early and often when I arrived, my wife and I have 26,000 children. We have one who lives with us and, and he is now, he arrived when he was in seventh grade and he's now a graduating senior in dual enrollment. But the reality is we had to have that conversation and we were watching it early morning and I had a leadership team meeting to attend and to kick off as I always do. And I just couldn't, I couldn't. And before we even opened, I actually had a, a debrief with our executive cabin and I broke down, Michael. Mm -hmm. I, I, and, and so we were on a virtual call and they saw me and I, I just, I could not continue. And so, you know, what's wrong? I said, I can't. I said, I'm not okay. I said, and I will be okay. I said, what we all just saw, if you're watching the news, if we all just saw what we saw, I just want you to know that hit me in a different way. And I told them. So we were able to transition to the opening of the meeting and the same happened. I, I could not get through my opening remarks. And people were empathetic. You hate to, to, you know, to impact the, you know, the tone and tenor, but I'm human. And I said, I, I can't, I told everyone, I said, I'm going to be okay, but I'm not okay right now. And so that was for me, I think a moment of, of truth telling that was deeper than I think I had ever shared before. Mm -hmm. And I literally said, you know, I can relate to what happened. I said, I have a black man leading as superintendent. I am our superintendent and proud to serve. I said, well, what I saw today, I said, I am not quite sure how to process all of that at this point. And it was real. So it, to me, that was the tipping point for if there's anyone in this organization that who doesn't believe that coaching or leading or embracing racial equity should not be a part of our core values. Equity is one of our three core values, equity, excellence, and community. But to embrace what we've begun since 2016, 2017, with the adoption of our race and equity policy, with our supporting an initiative to work with kingmakers of Oakland to focus on targeted universalism through the summer, the beginning of next year and beyond to support those who are furthest away from educational opportunity and justice, our, particularly our black and brown male students. And to help, again, everyone to understand that when we're doing this well for those who suffer the most, it will always benefit those who suffer the least. And so that was the answer to the question, well, why are we focusing only on black and brown males? And I said, I understand that. I said, this is not about one or two or three types of students. This will benefit all of our students when we're doing this well. Mm -hmm. But that moment and the fact that I represent, based on a study, I think that was done in 2000, early 2000, it was a study by Shake Shaft and, and Jackson that African-American males make up roughly 3%, 3, 3% of all superintendents in the United States. That's 14,000 plus school districts in this country. Right. And so I know that my voice may resonate differently. I know that people may see me differently. I also know that my experience is growing up and then I go back to my parents and my, my ancestors, my aunts and my cousins and those who are, whose bodies are still with us. They built me for this. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's the hardest work. 
I've ever engaged in. And it's the most rewarding when we see the results that show up after years of, of work and similar uh, trajectories that we saw when I wasn't a superintendent, but assistant superintendent in Gwinnett County. Some of the same results that we're seeing now, and it shows that this work is transferable. So to your point, as different as the Southeast is from Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, the children have the same needs. Parents and families have the same desires and wants for their children. And the strategies that we use have actually seen similar, not identical, but similar results. That's what I'm, I'm most proud of. And it goes back to that servant leadership. So equity has its place. And we can't do this work. And I'm glad and, and proud to say that Washington State is embracing you know, the, the equity agenda. It's been a challenge because the faces of the Southeast are vastly different than the faces of and the experiences of those who live in the Washington State for the most part. However, the needs are identical. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what we focus on. Well, I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned that after the murder of George Floyd, how yes. you know, there is no excuse now for anyone to not feel that building racial equity is a core part of what we're doing at Kent School District. In some ways, I feel like that's the case just for education in general, because something I think about for me, right, it was always told me, get an education, you will have all the opportunity in the world. And that's honestly, it's true for me, right? I had a lot of opportunity because I was able to get that education. If as educators, right, if it really is true that we're really wanting all students to succeed, then we should be wanting all all students to have that opportunity as well, right? And that means that if there are students that that's not happening for, it's not going to hurt those students that it is already happening for. It's actually probably just gonna mean there are also more opportunities for them too. <laughs> and so it seems like even for white superintendents, kind of as regardless of the color of your skin, you should be, if you're an educator, this is absolutely a core part of what you should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I can say when I arrived in 2015, there were two African-American superintendents when I arrived. Now, I know that that has more than been doubled since I uh, have been here, but the reality is there are, I think, less than seven. Don't quote me on that, but I, I certainly know it's you know maybe slightly more than a handful. And there are several hundred districts in Washington State, right? There are 295 school districts. And so that gives you an idea, certainly, of some of the opportunities that still exist for recruitment. Mm -hmm. But I say that to say now it is not lost on me that this racial equity work is most important, certainly for our white allies and, and co-conspirators in this work. Yeah, I wanted to ask that because, I mean, at School CEO, we talked with several superintendents across the country. You know, we've had many white superintendents tell us, and they've also told us of, of colleagues that they know that have said, do you have any resources on just where to begin? Because especially if we're working in predominantly white area, predominantly white staff, these are obviously not conversations that they're used to having. And so, one, I'm not trying to just put this all on you as you being the <laughs> responsible for this, but what advice would you give to white superintendents and white colleagues to say for them that are in that position of, I know I need to do something, but I honestly just don't know where to go? No, I appreciate that question and know that you know I do take responsibility. I, I don't believe that it's solely my responsibility, but I also know that I have a voice mm -hmm. and if I don't share it, then shame on me. And so what I appreciate about colleagues, the vast majority of my colleagues don't look like me mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that we're as I shared earlier, the reason why we have you know, that broader circle, because each one can teach one and there are experiences. As a matter of fact, those experiences that I had during our leadership team meeting, I use that example. Mm -hmm. We had conversations about that. And there were teachers, there were principals and building administrators who asked, is it okay to talk about Black Lives Matter? That was a question, mm -hmm. a real question. And I said, thank you. There's no reason why anyone should be ashamed or fearful of asking that question because it's real. If you want to learn, we're a learning organization, ask it. 
And so the conversation that we had, absolutely it's okay to talk about it because yes, black lives do matter. I just, mm -hmm. This is a perfect example. They certainly don't matter more than anyone else's, but my God, they certainly don't matter less. Right. And we're seeing instances where it does feel like that. So yes, it's okay to have the conversations, but make sure you're not having those conversations without support. So if you don't feel comfortable, thank you. That's the first, right? Admitting that you have a need or a gap, not a problem because learning is not a problem. Le learning just means you don't know something yet. So how do you learn? You, you have to be introduced to it. So let's talk about that. So we provided resources, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center. We provided resources for our leaders. I, I often share with our colleagues. I grew up professionally in a region of this country where when I've been in the room, I'm rarely the only person who looks like me. In fact, generally it was the exact opposite in many cases. And that's everywhere. So depending on where, where we were now, that even that has changed, right? In the last 10 or 15 years. But I, I say that to say, you know, whether it's it's reading in some of the, the books that I offer to them, one of my favorite authors, Ibram X. Kendi, one book that I'm reading most importantly now is Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Even during that meeting, I shared, if you haven't read the Cornerstone speech, the notion of you know, the Southeast and the Civil War conversation and the fact that it was understood and shared common knowledge, quote unquote, that it was a divine right of for white people to be in power. Mm -hmm. I said, that's nothing to feel guilty about or bad about. I said, it's called information. Yeah. And there were people, I will tell you right now, who, who were very uncomfortable with that conversation. I said, this, this is history. And again, on the precipice of February, Black History Month, I said, there's no better time. This conversation is fitting in, in apropos any day of the week of any year of any month, mm -hmm. you know, stamp from the beginning, uh, how to be an anti-racist. That really is our call to action now. You know, it's, it's during these challenging times that, that I reflect upon the courageous words of, of Angela Davis when she said, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist, but she said, we must be anti-racist. That is our charge now. We must be against anything that supports one race in particular white race or culture over any other as a supreme we see what happens yep. uh, when that's not not viewed in that same way so I, I offer this first of all if i would advise anyone how to get started with this conversation know your why know why you need to have the conversation with your colleagues to learn right we're in a learning organization what better place to have this conversation there is none if we're not doing it in schools then where else are we going to be doing it right <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And so the training ground, that learning opportunity, and if we're constantly learning, I know I don't know everything. And as a learner in this work, even though we've been doing school like we have been for the last 400 years, you know, and the inconvenient truth, and I hate to say we had to have a, a global pandemic to help shake us out of this, this way of doing this work, but we, we actually can now see another way of educating our youth, I am not saying by any stretch that this is ideal. I'm not saying that the fact that we have lost so many lives and that so much of our normal conditions have been upended. You're not hearing me say that. Mm -hmm. What I will share with you, what my parents taught me is sometimes when you think something is really bad that's happening to you, take another perspective, shift your perspective about six degrees, look up or look down. And you might see something that you never thought you'd ever embrace before. You might see something that you can actually use and take away from. 
so I'd ask and implore to my colleagues and to all educators, know why you need to have the conversation with your colleagues first. And then learn more about what you need to have that conversation about when you engage in dialogue, that two-way meaningful conversation. Prepare for the conversation. So don't just, let's just have a talk. No, so actually think about what, what do you want to achieve as a result of this conversation? And the next is to have the conversation, right? To be prepared in that conversation, most importantly, to listen. And, and that's what I've learned so much from being married to my wife for almost 20 years, 19 and a half, I have become a much better listener as a result. And she will tell you, and I am proud to say that, but to be prepared to listen, that's the most important form of communication. And after you're listening, you've had the conversation, that in-depth discussion, take action. Even if it's just one, one option that you're going to take of many, what is that one thing that you're gonna do? And then do it then determine how well you did it. And I would say, finally, research. Research and take advantage of resources. And it doesn't have to be the journals, the articles or the 300 page books. It can be the book by Jacqueline Woodson that I'll be reading to our students, right? The Day You Begin, which is a children's book. It can be I Am Enough by Grace Byers. All Are Welcome by Alexandra Penfold, Suzanne Kaufman. And these are children's books. LeBron James wrote, I Promise. You can start anywhere. Let's start, right? And that's that's how we can get through this and we can learn from this and be better as a result. And that's what education is all about. Servant leadership, equity work. Calvin, really appreciate you joining us today and really appreciate you sharing. I mean, you're very personal insights. Well, I, I certainly appreciate uh, this time. And thank you, Michael. And thank you to the entire school CEO team for having me. I simply want to say I appreciate uh, your providing an opportunity for me to share both my origin story and my leadership story. Uh, certainly educational leadership has never been more important in my eyes than it is today. And as we ensure that each and every student learns and achieves at increasingly higher levels, and in Kent School District, this is our charge that uh, upon graduation, they're ready to thrive within college, career, and their own respective communities. And that's a responsibility that I hold dear and take very seriously. Thank you again for allowing me to share. Thanks for listening to this School CEO Conversation. You can follow and reach out to Dr. Watts on Twitter at SUPT Calvin Watts. Check out the show notes to find all of the resources mentioned in this episode and to learn more about Kent School District. Subscribe to School CEO at schoolceo.com for more advice, stories, and strategies for leading your schools. School CEO is brought to you by Aptigee.